Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360, and I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Wilson Center. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. In this week's special focus edition of America's 360, our roundtable will discuss recent events in the U.S. in response to the killing of George Floyd while in police custody. And they'll expand the discussion to explore the state of race relations throughout the Americas. So let's meet our panel. Cindy Arnson, director of the Wilson Center's Latin American program. Duncan Wood, director of the Center's Mexico Institute. Canada Institute director, Christopher Sands. Argentina project director, Benjamin Gadan, And Brazil Institute director, Ricardo Zanini. Welcome everyone, great to have you back. So since the televised killing of George Floyd, which happened on May 25th, we have seen protests in the streets of America, across the country, every day since then, pushing the issues of police violence and systemic racism to the top of the domestic agenda. So I want to begin by asking, how are other countries in the Americas reacting to what's happening in the U.S.? What's their view of the U.S. government response? So Chris, I want to begin with you because there was a dramatic response or a non-response for 21 seconds from the Prime Minister of Canada. Tell us about that as just one example of reactions internationally. Sure, John. The Prime Minister was giving a press conference, and this was right in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing. And he he was fed a question by a reporter who asked if he had anything to say to Donald Trump uh, about this. And the Prime Minister, trying not to cause an international incident, pause for those 21 seconds. But he went on to say that that Canadians shouldn't be too smug, that there are problems of racism in Canada. And it was only a few months ago, although it seems like a year ago, that Aboriginal Canadians, that what they call First Nations, were protesting police violence by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in their communities. Several communities had banned them from participating uh, in law enforcement on native lands. And uh, they were blockading rail rail lines in order to raise their grievances to a higher level. They were also protesting pipelines. But uh, I think Trudeau tried to handle that diplomatic uh, divide very carefully. But his message, I think, is important. It's one that to recognize that this should call all of us to be concerned. And we've seen, of course, protests in in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, uh, very much in sympathy with what you're seeing in the United States as well. It's interesting, Chris. I mean, in Latin America, there's very little reluctance to criticize the United States when there's an opportunity. And even though, you know, issues of racial inequality and police abuse are rampant in Latin America, often the Latin American left has used these issues in the United States as the real tip of the sphere. So there's no 21 seconds. In fact, figures like Fidel Castro in his day, including in the late 60s, for example, when these issues were very much in the forefront of the United States, would frequently attack the United States saying, look, before all the moralizing and the advice uh, in Latin America, take a look at the mirror. And these were often the issues that, you know, the U.S. felt very vulnerable to that kind of criticism. 
It's funny because that was very much the case in, in the 60s for Canada. They were, they were quite alienated from the United States by the civil rights movement, which they're very sympathetic with Martin Luther King and the peaceful demonstrators, but they didn't have that situation at home. In the 1960s, at the time of the Canadian centennial, in fact, in 1967, 90% of the Canadian population had its origins in Europe. That's not the case today, but the homogeneity of the Canadian population made them feel quite uh, uncomfortable with issues of race and, and very smug about it. They, that's changed as Canada's become more diverse. I also wanted to mention at the start of this discussion, since this is an audio podcast and our listeners may not know this, everyone participating in this discussion right now is white-skinned. I just want to say that in, in the interest of transparency and being honest with our listeners about who we are. And I think we're acutely aware of what we don't know. And so we won't presume too much as far as our perspectives as we work through this topic. And Cindy, I know you want to jump in. Thanks, John. You were making reference to the way that there have been these global protests in response to the killing of George Floyd. And, and I think it's just given um, an enormous opportunity to countries that are antagonistic to the United States or who have different authoritarian political systems to be critical of the U.S. as having a massive double standard. I mean, you've seen governments, China, Russia, North Korea, come out and condemn um, what's happening in, in America. And, and closer to home, Nicolas Maduro of, of Venezuela had a great comment where he said, because this is a country that's been subject to um, really severe U.S. Uh, economic and financial sanctions, he said that the U.S. wants to suffocate us the way uh, they suffocated this young African-American. So putting himself in the position of victim um, and making common cause with minorities in, um, in the United States. At the same time, it's just made, you know, every diplomat that has to represent the U.S. values or, or U.S. emphasis on human rights or democracy to uh, counterparts abroad find his or her job so much more difficult as a result of what's happening in the United States. And I think over time, I mean, especially since the beginning of the invasion of Iraq, there has been a real erosion of, of U.S. standing in the hemisphere. It's a fascinating thing that we see here, Cindy, uh, that you have a leader like Maduro taking the moral high ground. You know, it's a golden opportunity for all those uh, uh, folks throughout Latin America, indeed throughout the world, who have been criticized by the United States to fight back. And I'm sure that all of you have heard the same kind of comments from colleagues throughout Latin America as I have over the phone about you know, how racist the United States and how the United States has lost its moral high ground in these, in these situations. In the case of Mexico, of course, we haven't really heard that strong a reaction from the government. The current president there doesn't believe in uh, intervening in the internal affairs of other countries, so he's kept uh, pretty quiet. Um, but what's been fascinating to observe is how the debate there has actually focused on the question of police brutality rather than racism. And there is a, there's a small group of folks in, in Mexico who continue to say, look, we need to recognize that race is an issue in Mexico, as it undoubtedly is. But there, the conversation has really moved towards the question of policing tactics. But I, I continue to press the point that there is an opportunity in Mexico and beyond that, uh, that is presented to us by this current situation to discuss race on a more overt level. So one thing that really strikes me is uh, one thing Cindy mentioned, how the challenge that American diplomats face overseas as a result of this. This One of the depressing elements is that this is a very long-running theme. There was an allusion to Canada and others during the civil rights movement, the positions that 
where they found a real separation, a real separation of values between the United States and, and values in Canada and other parts of the, of the world. I saw a reference the other day to Dean Acheson having testified during Brown versus Board of Education in the United States and talking about this exact issue and how, how costly it was for the United States to be fighting not only images but facts uh, related to discrimination, particularly in that this is still the age of, of Jim Crow, so it was even more apparent, more clear at that time. But this continues to impact us right down to this day. That sticks very much in my mind as something that, that speaks to a problem that not only we haven't dealt with, but we're, we feel seem quite far from dealing with as a, as a society. At the same time, Duncan, what you're mentioning, what others have mentioned, the fact that it is the criticism of the United States, while valid, is often not accompanied by some reflection in the countries that we're working with on left and right, uh, but really social disparities that are not just matters of race or matters of uh, social standing, but really deep-seated cultural differences within countries where it's much easier to see uh, disparities and difference and discrimination in another country than it is to see one in their own. And I think we all have encountered this in nearly every country in the, in the region. I mean, I think you're right, but both will be true, right? The U.S. will always face this glass houses problem. Absolutely. As ambitious as we are in assistance in Latin America. I mean, in Central America, where we do a lot of work on police reform. The police are, you know, rampant extrajudicial killings, rampant abuses, zero accountability. I think we should continue to do that work, even as we look to reform the police in the United States and look deeply about how we handle transparency and accountability. But, you know, that challenge that Cindy mentioned, you know, for U.S. diplomats, that, that will always be there if we're going to be putting ourselves in Latin America as a model of best practices in any of these issues. It's extraordinarily consistent, though, isn't it, throughout the hemisphere that you see this uh, uh, correlation between skin tone, prosperity, uh, opportunities. We, of course, have uh, a great team at the Wilson Center who's able to, has been able to put together some, uh, some data for us and just looking at the, uh, the rather shocking connection between skin color and wealth. I mean, the Brazilian case, 80% of the country's 1% are white. You know, in Mexico, it seems as though if you have the darkest skin tone that there is in the country, you have a 51% decrease in material wealth versus those with the lightest skin tone. And of course, in the case of Mexico, there's even amongst the sort of broader population, an ignorance that there even exists an Afro-Mexican population because it's relatively small, it's geographically um, uh, con confined to a couple of parts of Mexico. So many people are actually shocked when they discover that there is an Afro-Mexican heritage in the country. And I think it just shows that there's so much more to do for all governments throughout the hemisphere. I think that's right, Duncan. But, you know, I, as you know, I grew up in Detroit. And one of the things that uh, I was born sort of after the big riots in the 60s. And one of the things that that always struck me growing up around Detroit is the tendency to sort of say, you know, all of us on the call are, are light-skinned white people, but to see this as a problem for the African-American community. And, and what the history of Detroit suggests is that it's not it, it isn't a problem you can put off on on other people to solve. We all have a stake in trying to in trying to address it. And in these polarized times, whether it's Canada or other parts of Latin America, these things tend to make us say, "Well, we're better. They're they're the ones with the problem." I think we all have this problem, and it's only going to get better if all of us, including those who are criticizing us abroad, recognize that this is something we're all in together. 
John, you began the conversation by asking about the international reaction and certainly the, the behavior of the police, the racial disparities and discrimination in the United States have been a big part of that. Um, but another thing that's been particularly shocking uh, for countries in the Southern Cone um, that have gone through military dictatorship is the kind of language that's being used by President Trump himself, by the Trump administration, and the militarization of the response. This idea that you have troops in the street that are not identified as to their names or to the, the, the core that they belong to, the, the use of this rhetoric that, you know, when the, when the uh, looting starts, the, the shooting starts, you know, things like this, that um, the call to dominate, you know, the streets, I mean, it's just a kind of heavy handed policing that we have traditionally stood against um, in a, our relationships yeah. with Latin American countries. That's a, that's a great point. I mean, just back to the sort of theme of glass houses for the United States and Latin America, I think we often point to inadequacies in the U.S., but say, look, we address them effectively. So if we try to fight corruption in Latin America, we say, look, we have it here too. The FBI is going to investigate it, and that mayor will end up in prison. That governor will end up in prison. And here, Cindy, you're right. We have uh, racial inequalities. We have abusive policing. The question is, how will the system react now that it's been once again brought to light? Now that you bring up the policing issue, Ben, I think it's, it's vitally important that we remember that, you know, in the United States, for example, we used to have very, very corrupt police departments not so long ago. And whilst that issue still exists, um, it's been greatly reduced. <coughs> through some very successful reforms that have taken place. We're at a, a pivotal moment right now. We're seeing a nationwide conversation about reforming police departments across this nation. Hopefully in a few years time, that gives the United States a positive experience that can be taken out there into the, uh, into the, 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 the hemisphere. Um, but of course, you need to have some successes before you can begin to sell your product. There's a recent study that, that done by an American university that listed three reasons that police are involved in violent incidents more in the United States than seemingly anywhere else in other countries. For example, American police killed, I believe, 31 people at, in, during a same period where British police, UK police, killed three. So the, it, it, it's actually a larger number than that. I think it was 30, uh, three a day versus three all year in the UK in the last year that these statistics were kept. And they identified three things. And I want you to think about whether or not this applies across the Americas or this is a uniquely American problem. One was the availability of guns, that police in the United States are more likely to encounter a suspect, a criminal, a, a person within the streets who also has a gun. Another is a lack of accountability that the bar is lower for U.S. police to use their firearms when responding to uh, a call. And then the third was training, that compared to many countries around the world, U.S. police officers receive much less training in perhaps nonviolent ways to intervene. Is this a uniquely American problem, or do you see a pattern like this across the Americas? This is very common in in across the Americas, and depending on the community and the and the locality, this is a very common problem. On top of other problems that exist, uh, the issues of training, issues of financing, issues of the extreme availability of firearms. The United States has an additional burden from a from an optics and and a, from a reality standpoint, just because many of the weapons that end up in crime being used in crimes in the Americas actually come from the United States originally uh, and were originally purchased, manufactured and or purchased in the United States. And so there's an additional 
uh, burden there. But the, the, the reality is that, in fact, those dynamics do exist uh, across the region and, so, and in some cases even uh, much more severe uh, dynamics. But uh, And they the, overlap with racism. They overlap with racism. They overlap with or with other forms of discrimination that exist across different societies. The real question for me is where do we go from here? There's all of this energy in civil society that we're seeing in, in several countries. So the question in my mind is, does this turn into anything lasting? Does this turn into anything that turns It, it has into- to be a priority now for, for policymakers. I mean, right. just looking at the basic data, one in four Latin Americans actually identifies as being an Afro-descendant. And for a lot of people out there, I think that will be, that will be shocking. If you spent time in, uh, in Mexico or Central America, you wouldn't necessarily think that the number was that high. If you spent time, of course, in Brazil, you would accept it. Um, Argentina, Ben, uh, you know, you have a very homogenous looking population there. We haven't even touched upon the, the issue of indigenous peoples throughout the Americas yet, which, uh, you know, re- continues to be a, uh, a huge problem in terms of levels of education, access to opportunities, etc. So I think that, uh, you know, leaders, both governmental, societal and, and business leaders, need to begin to take this issue a lot more seriously throughout the, the hemisphere. Oh, excuse me, Chris, let me just jump, jump in and, and, and mention, um, going back to these disparities in policing, it's not just the, the way that the police themselves are armed or trained, it's also that Latin America shares with the United States this vastly disproportionate number of victims who are Afro-descendant. In a country like Colombia, on the Pacific coast, the, the city of Cali, some 80% uh, violent deaths of men between the ages of 15 and 19 are Afro-descendant. I mean, that's just an overwhelming number. And, and I think it's, uh, it's similar to the United States. And I would like to just sort of bring it back to this notion that, you know, we've got a long way to go um, in the United States. In the District of Columbia, where the Wilson Center is located, relative to the white population, um, Afro-Americans, Black Americans, are six times, six times more likely to die of COVID than the white population. In the state of Kansas, five times as, as likely. In Michigan, uh, four times as likely. Let me just mention Michigan again. Um, Blacks are 14% of the population in Michigan. They are 41% of the deaths due to COVID. So we just have huge racial disparities in this country on, across so many different issues, um, and these are replicated in the Americas. And those, number, those numbers you mentioned in Michigan, Cindy, are pretty consistent across the United States. With some variation, but, but uh, there are certain states that stand out. We are, we are a little over time. This is too big of a topic for us to do justice to in one session, so I'm sure we'll revisit it. Cindy, Ricardo, Benjamin, Chris Duncan, thank you very much. We'll see all of you back here for future episodes. And we will return with another episode of America's 360. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. 